on February 27, 1991, a mother in Kansas uh, was doing what she always does in a day when the phone rang. It was bad news. Her son, a private first class Clayton Carpenter, had stepped on a landmine in the Persian Gulf War and was dead. Hearing this news, she was in shock and she was in grief. She was frustrated. Many people tried to comfort her, but it was of no use at this time. Her loss was too great. Her son would never come home again, and she would never, she would need to mourn the lost. But a few days later, uh, she received a phone call. The voice on the other end said, Mom, it's me, Clayton. I am alive. At first, she could not believe it was the voice of her son over whom she had uh, just mourned a few days earlier. She said that she laughed. She cried. I jumped up and down. I was overjoyed. You could just imagine knowing my son was dead and now a call that he's really alive. We can only try to imagine knowing what it must have been like for this mother as her tears of grief and loss are turned into tears of unbelievable joy. And to know today is marked on the calendar as Easter Sunday. It is a remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And, you, and are you sad or are you grieved that Jesus died for you? Or are you rejoicing in the Lord today that he is risen? We should be rejoicing in the fact that someone who really did die, who really came alive again for each one of us. For the woman who stood beneath the cross, there was no doubt that Jesus had died. They heard his last words above the jeering and the mourning and the mocking of the crowds. They had witnessed agony. And then in his death on the cross, and they helped get Jesus' lifeless body down from the cross and carry it to the tomb. They caught their last glimpse of the one they loved as the stone was rolled over the entrance of the grave. You can only imagine the pain that Mary and the other women must have felt as they laid Jesus to rest in that tomb. When these women went back to the tomb on early Sunday morning, it is of no wonder that they were puzzled at first. When they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. Turn with me this morning to Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, We seek ye, he says, Why seek ye the living among the dead? 
He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And he remembered his words, and then returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre, and stopped, stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. You know, these puzzled women, they turned to fear as they saw two men with the brightest clothing standing in that tomb. And the men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He isn't here because he is risen. And so they went and raced off to tell the disciples what they had seen and what the angels had told them. And they said to the disciples, he isn't here but is risen. Our Lord is risen. He is alive. As we think about it this morning as Easter, the resurrection morning, it brings each one of us a new light on death and its impact on our lives. There will always be death in this world. But the angel tells the woman, Jesus, empty tomb. He says to us, you have nothing to fear. This message tells us that even the cruelest times, there is hope. The resurrection of Jesus gives each one of us a definite future beyond the grave. The Apostle Paul talked about this letter, this a lot in his letter, saying that because of his resurrections, we can be sure that the death has been defeated. Death does not have the last say over our eternal future. Jesus removes the power of death when he died and rose again from the dead. We can see that in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 20. It tells us in there, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and became the firstfruits of them that slept. Death is not the end, but the beginning of a glorious new life in heaven. He is risen, and that should be an excitement to each one of us this morning. Jesus' resurrection from the dead has made our own life beyond the grave certain and true. He is the Lord and master of death. He has made it all possible for us, for all that trust to believe him in him to have life eternal in heaven. Jesus has given us the victory of life eternal with him forever. And we can look back and remember what Jesus did for each one of us. And we again can celebrate a victory. Christ has won the victory for us over the grave. And he assures us that the death will not hold us down. We can be joyful and excited like Paul and shout. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. And today is our communion service. It's to remember what Jesus has done for each one of us. And what a special day to remember the sacrifice he has endured for each one of us. He has died on that cruel cross for the sins of the world. He was bearing all the sins of the world, including your sins and mine. He took the wrath of God upon himself and was on that cross. He cried out, my God, my God, 
Why have thou forsaken me? He was alone because God turned his back on the sins of the world. But Jesus could have called on his father. And he could have called at once 12 legions of angels to set him free. You know, his life was not taken from him. But he willingly gave it up for each one of us. Because of the great love he has for you and me. He died for us. As we come to communion and as we take of the bread, which represents the body that was broken for us, and as we take of the cup of the fruit of the vine, which represents the blood that was shed, just know how much he loved us, so much that he was able to give, this, give his life for each one of us. Remember, he is no longer on the cross. He is risen. He is alive. In Romans 8, verses 34, it tells us, But he rose again. He is alive and he ascended into heaven, and he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, and he's, in, and he's in, interceding for you and I. What an awesome God that we serve. He is alive, and we can be forgiven through the precious blood that is shed for you and I. Let's kneel as we pray. This morning's hour. We pray, thank you for your love, your care for us, for your death on the cross, taking our place on that cross. And today, as we come here this morning, knowing that it's Resurrection Day, that you are risen, you're alive, and you're uh, uh, sitting on the right hand, thrown aside of God, and interceding for each one of us, we just pray that we can recognize your great love and how much you care for each one of us. As we partake of the communion service this morning, that we can take the time, be still, and think of what you have done, and thank you so much for your love, that we have that connection to the Father. We just pray that you just help us as we continue to live our lives faithful and that we can have a home with thee in heaven someday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite your attention for council, a communion message to Isaiah chapter 53. So I was contemplating where to go, what to talk about on a message. My mind went to some very familiar verses. In Isaiah 53, 4-6, the title of the message is, The Suffering Servant. And Isaiah 53 has been often called the Suffering Servant Passage. And if you study Isaiah sometime, it is the fourth chapter in a series of passages dealing with the servant or the servant of the Lord. This, this servant that Isaiah is prophesying about is Jesus whom the writers of the four Gospels identify as fulfilling these verses, and whom we celebrate today as our risen Lord and our risen Savior. Thank you, Domus, for that devotional. In my studies, I came across a statement that said that Isaiah 53 is one of the best-loved passages of Scripture at all times, and particularly verses 4 to 6. It really speaks a lot about the suffering of Christ and what he represents. You get um, into the New Testament, and you'll find in Acts chapter 8, this was the passage that the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was studying. When God told through the Spirit, to, told Philip to go down there and find him, and remember the story, he asked him, what is he reading? And he said about this passage, do you, do you understand it? How can I accept the man, a man explain it? And he gave Philip an opportunity to ride with him and explain 
that this passage is about the Messiah, which led to the eunuch becoming a believer of Jesus. As you read through this passage of Isaiah 53, it becomes evident that this is a prophecy of someone that is coming. And if you study earlier in Isaiah, you'll see where he writes about the coming Messiah. But now here in chapter 53, he gives more detail about what it's going to look like. And as I studied this, I, it became, it comes hard for me to understand how someone can read this passage and not see Jesus. Now throughout the centuries, the Jewish people held the position that this passage was actually referring to them as a nation rather than Jesus as Messiah. And their primary reason for this belief is simply because they had, over time, formulated a, a different expectation of the Messiah than what the, than what the Bible talks about. And they had, like so many people, taken select passages of Scripture that appealed to them and then formulated from these select verses visions of a deliverer, of a Messiah who is going to come in military might and military power to overthrow the Roman tyrants and to set Israel free. And in that way, they, their interpretation was is that God was going to set them up as the chief of nations on earth. But because God didn't fulfill these promises as they thought he would, they, had to, they felt like they had to maintain that this prophecy does not apply to Jesus. However, as you get into studying it, it becomes clearer, and especially when we have a mind that is open to receiving the entirety of God's word, we see that it is indeed about Jesus. Psalm 53 actually begins, as some of the commentators and the study guides I was <clears throat> using, make it clear that the last three verses of chapter 52 are part of this passage. And as you put those together, you will find five stanzas or five sections that depict various foreviews or, or, or prophecies of the work of the Messiah, and each stanza bringing out a different aspect of his work, of his life. Let's read Isaiah 52, starting at verse 12, or verse 13, and then we're going to read to the end of 53. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and, who, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, put him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide a portion of the great with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he, hath, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We'll stop reading there. May the word of God really ring out in our hearts. The last three verses of chapter 53 present the first point of the message this morning, and that is the presence of the servants. And you'll find here Isaiah describing the remarkable impact that the Messiah has on mankind. He opens with this declaration that Jesus is going to be successful. He wrote, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. The word prudently here is the idea of wisely or having good success. In other words, the Messiah's mission, Jesus' mission, would be successful. And Isaiah gives three specific stages that Christ's mission would be accomplished. And many commentators I was looking at referred to these events that happened after Jesus was resurrected. First of all, you see the words, he shall be exalted. This is, again, in reference to the resurrection of Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus went through the cross. He was crucified. He died. Three days later, he rose again. He literally was stepping into a condition of life that no man had entered before. I thought of the example of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised. Jesus raised Lazarus. He brought him back to life, yes, but he only brought him back to the same earthly life, and he later died again. Jesus, as Colossians 1.18 talks about, was the firstborn from the dead. And so he was exalted beyond what any mere human has been exalted. Secondly, in verse 13, he shall be extolled. The, the idea here is lifted up. And again, as you think about the events that took place after Jesus' resurrection there in Acts, he was lifted up. So he was physically and literally lifted up. Thirdly, Isaiah says, shall be very high. The Hebrew switches the word very and high around. And I don't know the significance of that. But in the Hebrew, Hebrew, it really says, he shall be high, very. Turn to Philippians 2. Verses 9 to 11, we'll see some read words that the Apostle Paul wrote. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 
Philippians 2, verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, him being Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his kingly exaltation have had a tremendous impact on humanity, and it still does today. And it's a fulfillment of this prophecy. It's interesting. I was looking at some news this morning, and even on some news, what we would consider ungodly news source, they have in about Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's still being mentioned today. And there's people who don't have much part to, with God at all, but on Easter Sunday, many of you will find some of those in church. Verse 14, you will notice that many were astonished at him. And this happened in two different ways. First of all, as implied here, there was people that were astonished at his death. And, and Isaiah goes and gives some, some fairly graphic descriptions of the face of Jesus. You remember the story, if you've read the accounts, and I trust that you took some time this week to read through the accounts and to remember what Jesus went through. He endured some very gruesome things. Roman scourgings were horrible. He was beaten. The soldiers took a rod and placed blows on his face, calling that rod the king's scepter. They, they made a crown of thorns and jammed it on his head. This is the idea. If you know, People were astonished at his at his, at his look. And so by the time he was nailed on the cross, most likely his face was a bloody mess. The vision is what, that is what Isaiah was prophesying about here in verse 14, is this, I believe Isaiah was getting a glimpse, God gave him a glimpse of what Jesus had to endure. Jesus' appearance was so marred and so devastating it seems like there were some who, passed, as they were passing by at his, at his crucifixion, were astonished at how he looked. Verse 15, then, describes another form of astonishment in Isaiah 52. It says there, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It's quite telling of the impact that Jesus would have and will continue to have. I was struggling with this, this word sprinkle, these words sprinkle many nations, and a couple other translations bring it out a little clearer. One uses the word startle in place of sprinkle. Another nation has the idea of marvel at him and astonishment. The point I think that Isaiah wants us to get is that the shed blood of Jesus has had such an impact on mankind throughout all these centuries that it brings a wonder and amazement to folks as they hear and see what he does. There's a historian by the name of Kenneth Scott Latouré who said, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that, measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. Many important people have passed on. And if you don't go and dig and study for them, you don't know much about them. But even people who are ungodly know about Jesus. They may not accept him, 
They may reject him, but they know about him. And so it seems that what Isaiah is trying to get across here is that Jesus, the servant of God, had made such an impact on the world that he simply cannot be forgotten. The second stanza or passage of, of this Isaiah portion of Scripture is the first three verses of, of chapter 53. And they describe Jesus' strange rejection. In my studies, I came across this statement. Someone stated that these words express the feelings of a repentant nation as they at last recognize him at his return. And I thought about someone, you know, when we came to Christ, when I came to Christ, you know, before, before I knew Christ, this, the way of Christ and how it works and what he did didn't make a lot of sense to me. But as a, as, as a believer now, as I've accepted Christ, and I look back on his conversion, and, and I'm saying Christ was revealed to us, or before I was, uh, before I was saved, I'm getting this switched around here, before I was saved, I didn't understand. So I, I kind of see what Isaiah is saying here. Who hath believed our report and who hath the arm of the Lord revealed? It didn't make sense. But yet there was time, there's still people today. It doesn't make sense. And even when it does, there's still some rejection. But as we come to the saving knowledge of Christ, we understand a little bit better. Today around us, there are people who still refuse to believe the gospel. That Jesus indeed came as prophesied. That Jesus died. That he came and provided salvation for them. And he did this in spite of the unbelief. It seems like Isaiah here has a picture of not just the nation of Israel rejecting their Messiah, but also a bit of a looking forward to all the nations and the peoples who were yet to come. And would still reject this Messiah. I don't know what all Isaiah saw as, as, as God told him to write these words. Maybe he was seeing way in the future and all the nations that were to come beyond this point. I don't know. We do know that Isaiah spent years telling his people to repent of their sins. To return to God. Jeremiah was another prophet where he spent years proclaiming the word of the Lord. But yet few listened. And so with that thought, it's not hard to imagine Isaiah's lament as he says here, who hath believed our report. Isaiah it goes on in verse 2 to describe the Messiah further. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Referring to Jesus growing up years. Something I read in my, in my studies for this message was that this phrase is referring to Jesus' hidden years growing up in Nazareth in obscurity, in the obscurity of his father's carpentry shop. He was, we don't read a lot about his growing up years. Luke 2.40 is, is one of the couple verses that we read about his growing up years. Mary and Joseph had returned from Egypt after their escape from Bethlehem, where God had told them to go down to escape from Herod. And Luke 2.40 says, The child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And in a few verses later, in, verses 50, in verse 52, it says, and, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and man. So we don't know much about the childhood of Jesus, except for a few of these verses. But we do know that when his ministry began around the age of 30, it was then that he became his popularity in Greece. When he became known, his ministry, his works, his deeds he did, his, the words he said. Isaiah also talks about this phrase of he's a root out of dry ground. I think this went through me with, through, with me a little bit. There was numerous prophecies. There was numerous promises throughout Scripture that, that said that Jesus the Messiah was going to come in the lineage of David. In fact, Isaiah 11 verse 1 says the Messiah would come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. However, as we are familiar with, with the history of, of Israel, by this time, Israel had fallen in evil days. They had forsaken God. They had rejected God. God kept the lineage there. However, the royal line, as history shows, had become so impoverished and so far from the Lord that it was not even recognized in its claim to leadership within Israel. And so you put that into the words that Isaiah said here about him as a root out of dry ground. Christ indeed was like a root out of dry ground. You can picture the metaphor that Isaiah is trying to bring out here. Further on in verse 2, we're talking about the Messiah's rejection. He had no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And again, I believe this is Isaiah's prophetic words speaking of Jesus and his appearance as he hung on the cross. Think about with me the pitiful image that that was. He was hanging there on the cross. He had been beaten. He had been scourged. And a Roman scourging was no laughing matter was brutal. My understanding is, is that a Roman scourging ripped up the back. He was now nailed to a Roman cross without clothes, blood covering his face, mocked, worn and shattered by the suffering that he was forced to endure. This is not the picture of a king. This is not the impression of an all-powerful leader that people want to follow. I believe I missed a whole page of my notes. But he was beaten. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. going to have to go on. We're going to miss that part. So Christ was hang, hanging there. He was rejected by man. Getting on to verses 4 and on. We come into the third stanza. And it talks about his being wounded. His being chastised. You and I, brothers and sisters, deserved to be chastised for our sins. We, didn't, we don't deserve salvation. But Christ went to the cross. He accepted those, those chastisements in our place. 
because of his undying love and his desire to bring us peace. And as we ponder the awfulness of Jesus' sacrifice, we read what Isaiah is saying about his suffering. And I don't see any way how we can read this and still fail to see that Jesus is our great divine substitute. Isaiah says in verse 6, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. I don't know how many of you are familiar with sheep, but sheep seem to be very foolish, but at the same time very willful creatures. Sheep are known to find a hole in a fence and get out, but seldom are they going to find that hole and get back in. And they need someone to help them and to get them back in. And the thought that struck me as I was thinking about sheep was that in so many ways we are just like those stupid sheep. In our willfulness, we find the holes, if you will, in God's fence. Or we make holes in God's fence. And we flee from him and from his fold. But our ability to return to the fold without someone's help is, is, is real. During the communion service, as you eat the bread and you drink the juice, remember that those are symbols of the price paid for that someone. And in my notes, I have the someone in capital letters to return us back to God's sheepfold. God laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And because he did so, our punishment was replaced as he took our place. And the title for that passage is Jesus, our substitutionary sacrifice. The fourth stanza of this passage speaks of the silent sufferings of Christ. And I don't know if I truly knew how little Jesus said during his suffering. But remember, Scripture is very clear about the sinlessness of Christ. He was willing to bear our sins even though he was without sin. And, and if you study the passages, and so many times as he was going through the, his betrayals, the illegal trials, the mockeries, the beatings, he was spat upon. He was rejected. Christ most times remained silent. In the Gospel accounts of the trials of Jesus, he never spoke up in his own defense. He never tried to escape the penalty that was intended for him, even though, and Brother Dumas alluded to this in his devotional, even though at his, at his betrayal and his, at his arrest, he said, do you not know I could have called more than 12 legions of angels? He had the power, he had the resources at his fingertips to escape this path. But he stood before Pilate, he stood before Herod, he stood before Caiaphas, and his silence amazed them. As Jesus was standing before Pilate, he remained silent until his silence would have denied his very kingship. And then he only spoke briefly. He acknowledged only who he was. When those soldiers were, soldiers were beating him, when they were spitting on him, when they were mocking him, when they jammed that crown of thorns on his head, 
He said, nothing. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Isaiah describes him as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He stood before King Herod, who was powerful, who hated competition. And he returned him to Pilate because he could find nothing wrong with Jesus. The trials that Jesus went through were, were a farce. Even the Jewish trial before the high priest was illegal because they did it at night, contrary to the very Jewish law that they were saying they were upholding to get rid of Jesus. Pilate admitted several times that he could find no fault in Jesus, yet in the end he pronounced on Jesus the sentence of death. I thought about the mob as well, demanding Jesus to be crucified, even went to this extent that his blood be upon us and upon our children. And yet Jesus remained silent. As Isaiah said, he was truly stricken for the transgressions of his people at the end of verse 8. Brothers and sisters, when the deed of the, res of the, of the crucifixion of Jesus was completed, all the silent sufferings of Christ came to an end with the three most powerful words that I think a human or a being has ever, ever proclaimed. It is finished. And I look at those words, those three words. There is power and there is victory in those words that still ring loud and clear for us today. Salvation came at an awful price, an awful suffering. But it was a price that had to be paid. And it was paid in full. After Jesus' crucifixion and death, death silenced Jesus for three days. But those last words that he gasped out on the cross completed our salvation. The last section of verses has to do with Jesus' ultimate triumph. And Isaiah says in verse 10 that after all Jesus had to go through, we find this phrase there in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to have Jesus suffer. The Hebrew literally says it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He put him to grief. And this question has come up so many times throughout history. So many people ask, and it's, it's asked more in a questioning than a, in a desire to understand. But how could God send his only son to earth, leave heaven, come to earth, send his, put him on that cross? In the agony and the torture, the suffering and the rejection of a horrible crucifixion death. How could God find pleasure in that? And I think to answer the question, we need to look beyond the, the, that statement to find the answer. Jesus' pleasure, God's pleasure, of sending Jesus, his only son, to suffer that cruel and inhumane death at the hands of his rebellious creation 
We have, to, we have to look at it through the spectrum of God's intense love and his immeasurable desire for each one of us to be restored into a relationship with him. The very creation who rejected him is the very creation that he, is, he, he sent Jesus to restore. I believe the big picture explains that this amazing sacrifice was simply an expression of God's love for that creation. There's a hymn that says, oh, On Christ's almighty vengeance fell that would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God so desires that we, his fallen sinful creation, would be able to live in holiness with him. And that's why it pleased him to send Jesus through that awfulness of that of crucifixion. And, is, and because he did that, because it pleased him to do that, it established the path to which every person on earth, you and I, can be restored again into a perfected relationship with the whole, this holy God once again. And I see these last three verses here in Isaiah 53 as describing God's satisfaction. His satisfaction that his plan succeeded. Satisfaction that his plan works. Satisfaction that his plan was done. It was completed. It didn't just end on the cross. When Jesus said those three famous words, it is finished. That was important. But he completed this amazing plan with the resurrection. And today is Easter Sunday, the day when we celebrate Christ rising from the dead. He completed God's plan of salvation. And he put death, particularly spiritual death, under his heel. Verses 10 and 11 are describing the, the resurrection and the Messiah's pleasure after seeing what his sufferings have accomplished. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The, the Isaiah wrote, referring to Christ's resurrection. Think about it. How can a dead man see his offspring, and how can a dead man prolong his days? He shall see the travail of his soul. He shall be satisfied. That's a remarkable prophecy. I believe with all my heart that there was or is nothing more that was satisfying to Jesus as he went through this, 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 this awful death. Nothing was more satisfying than to see his people redeemed back to his father. Nothing else was there to fulfill the plan of salvation. And knowing this from his entire life, through his entire ministry, it became his relentless desire that drove him through the pain, the tears, the rejection, the suffering of the cross to achieve what he always wanted, to redeem his people back to his Father. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says it all, in my opinion, for the joy that was set before him, he endured, endured the cross, despising the shame thereof. In the end, to him, the suffering was nothing when it came down to looking at the end goal, to redeem his people. There's the answer of why it pleased the Father to send Jesus, because the joy that he feels when he, you and I, his creation, can be re 
instated back into a relationship with the Father once again. Verse 12, I see as a summary of this entire prophetic passage about the Messiah. Christ came to earth. He suffered tremendously. He suffered horribly. He died a criminal's excruciatingly painful death on the cross. But he went on to defeat death by his resurrection. And through doing this, he made the sinner righteous because he bore their iniquities. Romans 8.17 talks about those who receive the spirit of adoption, those who accept Christ's suffering atonements, that they will become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, as believers in Christ, we are richly blessed because of the sacrifice that Jesus was willing to give. We benefit today because it pleased God to send Jesus. Not just with our relationship with God now, but also with the promise of eternal life. The, the salvation plan is complete. There's no more sacrifices needed to be made, nor will there ever be. And so to me, this passage is a declaration of victory, victory over sin, victory over Satan, victory over death, because no longer is the end of life an, an issue for the believer. Christ defeated death with his resurrection and what that pleases God. And I'm here to proclaim that what pleases God pleases me. In closing, there was a writer who said this, it was for me that Jesus died for me and a world of men. Just as sinful and just as slow to give back his love again, he did not wait until I came to him. He loved me at my worst. He needn't ever have died for me if I could have loved him first. So this morning as we partake in the communion emblems, may we remember the sacrifice that Christ did for our sins. Let's remember it with, both, with a seriousness, reflecting on the awful price that was paid for our chastisement, for our iniquities. But may we also rejoice knowing that God is satisfied that his plan worked. Let's kneel for prayer. Father God, thank you for this gift you've given us, the gift of salvation. Thank you for creating a way <clears throat> that would, as awful as it was, that would bring us back to you. Lord, this morning we praise you for your love. We praise you for redemption. And Lord, as we continue forward in this service, as we eat of the bread and drink the juice, may we remember the sacrifice that you did, the awfulness of it. May we rejoice that you had a way that we could be restored back to you. Lord, may we each be a better people because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.